Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm your host, Sid Evans. And today I'm talking with someone who's best known as an actress, but lately she's been stepping out as a singer, songwriter, podcaster, and newspaper publisher. Bethany Joy Lenz was born in Florida and grew up in Texas, which is where she first got involved in the performing arts, carrying on a tradition she inherited from her grandparents. Her family eventually headed to New Jersey, where her southernness drew the wrong kind of attention from some of the girls in her class. But she made it through the experience and eventually landed on the hit TV show, One Tree Hill. Now Joy is living in Nashville, writing and performing music, editing a publication called Modern Vintage, and hosting a podcast with her One Tree Hill co-stars called Drama Queens. If that's not enough, she's starring in the new Hallmark original movie, A Biltmore Christmas, which is based on a trip back in time to the famous North Carolina estate. We'll talk about all that, plus the strange and frightening years she spent with a cult and why she's writing a book about it on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Joy Lenz, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thanks so much. It's so nice to be here. Where am I reaching you right now? I'm in Nashville. Moved here about a year ago with my daughter from L.A. And I love it. I mean, I'm a Jersey girl. I grew up in Texas and New Jersey, so it's a lot more my speed being over here. I'm really happy. Yeah, tell me about that. I mean, the last time I saw you was actually, was at our Idea House near Franklin. How's your new home treating you? It's so lovely. One of the best ways I can use to describe it is that my daughter, who is 12, we've been here a year now, and every time we leave a coffee shop or, you know, the mall, she just turns to me so frequently and says, everybody's so nice here. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Southern Hospitality, kid. Well, that's got to make you feel good. It really does. That she feels comfortable. Yeah, it really is. I moved when I was her age. We actually moved from Texas to New Jersey to my father's childhood home, if you can imagine what that must have been like for him. And his mother, my grandma, had passed away and the house was available and he had a job offer up in New Jersey. So We left Texas, left Dallas, and moved. And I tell you, those Jersey girls ate me for lunch. (laughs) They were merciless. (laughs) Here I was, my blonde hair, my white buck teeth, and my big Texas accent. And it was the worst year of my life. The sixth grade was absolutely the worst. And it got so bad that I used to go into the nurse's office and get a little Dixie cup and go into the bathroom in her office and fill the Dixie cup with water and then make sounds like I was vomiting over the toilet and then throw the Dixie cup full of water into the toilet so she would think that I was, you know, the actor in me really coming out. Oh my gosh. Just so that she would send me home because I just couldn't handle how awful they were. And so I have this trauma in my bones and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm moving my daughter across the country. Another kind of culture shock. How is this gonna go? It was this really scary thing to do. But I tell you, everybody's so lovely. She's great. Her school's great. The kids are great. The teachers are great. And we're in a culture now with very anti-bully. So that's also incredibly helpful. And yeah, she's doing wonderfully. And so am I. I have a lot of friends here. I have more friends here than I did in 10 years in LA. It's amazing. <laughs> That's great. I hear that all the time about people moving to Nashville. It's just a welcoming place. And there's a lot of transplants and people, you know, moving there. And so I think people just kind of, you know, I don't know, they just sort of open their door and let you right in. 
Yeah, I think that's a big part of the culture here. Well, tell me a little bit about Texas. You were born in Florida, right? Hollywood, Florida. And then you moved to Texas when? We moved when I was three or four. I don't remember, but I do remember sitting in the back seat of that car, the long car ride. We had an Oldsmobile, my parents tell me. And I remember just staring out the window for hours and hours and hours. I had a little doll that you pulled the string on its back and it sang. And I remember the song of the doll. And I also remember us pulling into a gas station and I remember the red brick wall in front of me. And my doll went, clap your hands, all you people, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Clap your hands, all you people, shout unto God with a voice of praise. Hosanna, Hosanna, na, 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 na. Okay, so the doll's doing this for, I'm sure, three hours straight. And my dad finally just, I remember pulling into the gas station. My dad gets out of the car, reaches in the back seat, takes a doll out of my hands, <laughs> puts it in the trunk, <laughs> and then goes in and gets snacks. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you put it in the <laughs> trash can. No, just in the trunk. Okay, yeah. <laughs> He's not cruel. He had had enough. But, yeah, he had definitely had enough. So that's when we moved. And we moved to, I believe, DeSoto, Texas first. And then we were in Arlington. And then we were in Bedford. Moved around. So do you kind of think of yourself as a Texas girl or some part of you as a Texas girl? Totally. I have a very dual identity in many ways with when I'm in Texas and when I'm in the South in general. I mean, you know, I spent 10 years in North Carolina filming a TV show that I can't talk about right now. But the, the South is so in my bones. And so much of that came from growing up in Texas around the country music and the football and the manners and calling adults by their last names and Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And then I have this other side of my personality that is I mean, I joke, it's like, I have the Southern optimism, but the Jersey, some is going to happen. <laughs> the New Jersey cynicism. Yeah, but I do. I feel so connected to the South, the humidity, the way people listen to each other. It's like everybody really cares about getting to know the person that they're talking to. And it's so much less transactional than a lot of other cultures. And I really appreciate that. What's the town that really stands out the most? Is it DeSoto? Is it Arlington? Or is it... Um mix of all of them? I do have most of my memories in, well, I would say Arlington because there was a little place there called Cats Creative Arts Theater School. Hmm. I spent every day after school there. Couldn't wait to get out of school to go and work on my tap classes and my musical theater classes and do work on whatever play we were doing. And I did that for several years until I started doing regional theater in Texas. And my neighbor, we were in a duplex, and I remember a lot of memories there just late at night crawling out of my bedroom window on the roof and crawling over to my neighbor's bedroom because she also was my age. And so we shared these opposite wall bedrooms in this duplex. And I would crawl over there after my parents thought I was in bed, and we would just sit up in her room late at night and talk and laugh and like be kids. I mean, that sounds like something out of a movie. I can picture it. <laughs> totally. Yes. Like crawling on the roof in the middle of the night. Oh my God, my mother would have had a heart attack. <laughs> but yeah, there's that. And then Bedford was where it, it started to get tough because I was fourth, fifth, sixth grade and the hormones are kicking in and it's all the drama. And that was tough. And my parents split up at that time. They got back together later. But yeah, there was a lot of drama those years. But I think the fondest memories that I have of Texas were in Arlington. I did love it there. What did your parents do for a living that had you moving around so much? 
Well, it actually bizarrely wasn't their jobs that moved them or what, like one specific profession. I mean, my mom is an entrepreneur. She's, as long as I've known her, started businesses and sold them off or jumped into, you know, at one point we had a room full of phones. <laughs> as a business? As a business, she bought a bulk of these phones with the coily cords and there were boxes and boxes and boxes of these beige phones and they were business phones so that you would answer them. And I guess maybe there was a shoulder rest on them and it had all these cool gadgets on the phone. And so she would go around selling phones. She also sold art. This sounds like Better Call Saul. (laughs) (laughs) It does. She was at one point the executive assistant to the president of Word Music Publishing in Dallas. And my father was a mental health counselor, drug and alcohol rehab counselor, and also an English teacher at one point and a history, journalism, and Bible teacher kind of bouncing around there at a high school in Texas. And they had all kinds of odd jobs. I think it was just they were so young, Sid. They got married at 20 and 22. Mm. And I came along right when my mom was 22. And I mean, in that day and age, like they had both just gone to Bible college. I think they were like, what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> let's move. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's go figure out what we're going to do. So, yeah. yeah. So, Joy, I always talk about food a little bit on this podcast. Who was the cook in your family and what were they kind of known for? Mama. Mother was always the cook. She loved food. In fact, one of the businesses that she started was meal prep for extraordinarily wealthy people. And to give you the juxtaposition, we lived in a town called Waldwick, New Jersey, and it was directly off of the highway. I mean, my across the street view was the highway. Anyway, we were very very low income. They were just working hard to do what they could. And one of the businesses my mom started was she would drive after school into these unbelievable neighborhoods. I just couldn't believe these homes. And then we would go in and there were these beautiful, well put together women who were, oh, hello. And you know, one of them, I remember this British woman once with all her plastic surgery. And she was so sweet though. And she had a daughter who had Pearl Jam posters all over her bedroom. And I just was amazed that people lived like this. And my mom would go and we'd spend three, four hours there. I'd do my homework and she'd cook her ass off and store all of the meals in their freezer for the next week. And then we'd be back again on Monday. Wow. So she was definitely the cook. I had all kinds of weird lunches. Some of them were great. Some of them I traded off for a bologna sandwich. But I ate very well growing up. I did. I can't say that. So what were some of her specialties? I mean, what's something that you loved? Like when you think, I wish I could have this right now. Mm, she made a great corned beef hash. Okay. And she used to make these couscous and feta cakes. And this is before couscous was a thing. You know, I think she had to like import the couscous from somewhere. She had to go to the Israeli market or something. But she made these red pepper feta cheese couscous cakes. They were little flat like crab cakes, but made out of couscous. And I'd open up my lunchbox and they <laughs> couscous cakes greeting me. But I did love them. I did. Yeah, but your friends were probably like, you know, that Joy has got some weird stuff in her lunchbox as they're, you know, eating their peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. <laughs> Joy was weird all around. I don't think it was too much of a shock. <laughs> what about grandparents? Was there a grandparent who was an especially good cook or who you were close to? I've never asked my parents about cooking 
with how they grew up in that regard. Although now that we're talking about it, I feel like my grandma Marge, my mom's mother, she has a crazy story too. I mean, Reader's Digest version. She grew up a really, really, really wealthy family, Connecticut, Greenwich. Father gambled away all the money and they lost everything and all the kids separated and it was crazy. And then she married my grandfather, who I never knew because he passed, I think, the year that I was born. But during their lifetime, she had four kids. And he also had a gambling problem and they'd lost lots of money and the kids had to go live in other places. Like, isn't that bizarre how generational things yes. will follow? All the habits that we form, all the things that we subconsciously think are normal or allow ourselves to engage in. I mean, it's amazing to me. But I do remember my mom's mom, my grandma, Marge, nanny, having recipe boxes. She had a lot of recipe boxes around full of handwritten cards of recipes. And I'm sure my mother has those now. I'll have to find out where they are. Yeah, you need to make sure you you hang on to those. <laughs> yes, I'm going to text her as soon as we get done with this so I can <laughs> not forget that. And then my dad's side. So grandpa and grandma were introduced by Joshua Logan, who is a legendary theater director on Broadway in the 40s. South Pacific, Wish You Were Here, all these amazing shows. My grandpa was on Broadway in these shows and also was a stage manager. Oh, this is starting to make sense. Yeah, so they met there. Joshua introduced them. And then they split when my dad was six. And my grandmother, his mom, was just a single mom raising him and his sister for many years. So I don't know if she spent a lot of time cooking or if it was a lot of sort of TV dinner meals. Mm. I have to ask my dad. But it sounds like some of the acting, the performing is in the blood. For sure. Yeah, yeah even my grandma's mother... Julia, I believe, left home at 19 to go join the circus. <laughs> and that would have been 1921, maybe. Well, you sort of did a modern version of that, I guess. Yeah, I did. I joke all the time. I'm, I'm in the circus. I mean, that's just what our lives are. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. So much traveling. Well, I want to ask you about another town that had a big impact on you and really was kind of another place that you grew up, and that's Wilmington. Yeah. How much time have you spent there, Sid? Have you been? Hardly any. Just passing through. Okay. So you haven't really engaged with the town, like wandered around in the streets for a long time? No. I mean, I know it as a magazine editor because we've written about yeah. it a number of times and I know people from there, but no, I haven't really spent time there. But you were there for, what, 10 years? 10 years. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about Wilmington and what is special about it to you? What's magical about it to you? What comes to mind? The first thing I remember when I got to Wilmington, I got off the plane and it was a sauna. It was so hot outside, but I loved it. I love the humidity. I have curly hair, so it makes me happy and <laughs> Mediterranean skin. And I just thrive with that. So it felt great. And then as we started driving through the town, the Spanish moss that was hanging everywhere, it looked like we were in a fairy tale. I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. And you smell the salt right there. And you know, the Atlantic is always so warm. And so anytime we would go to the beach, even if it was November, the water was still like tepid. It wasn't bad. The people were, again, that Southern way of welcoming you in. They were all so happy to have us there employing people and bringing more energy, new energy to the town. The streets were lit up in a really cozy way. This was at a time when a lot of the other shows 
on TV were very genre-based and there wasn't a lot happening that was just kids like feeling their feelings. And so I think there was a simplicity to life there that we all embraced because we were all just living the same life that we were living on camera, off camera. It was simple and a little dramatic because we were in our 20s and really, really, really beautiful. I mean, the other teen shows that I think of, I think of kind of a little more money and glitz and all the kids are really rich and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Or there's supernatural things and vampires and superheroes. And I mean, we love all those shows, but yeah, ours kind of stood alone in that way. It was a great time. So what about just some of your favorite haunts in that town? What were some of your favorite places to go? It breaks my heart that Deluxe is closed. There's a restaurant called Deluxe that really was our home away from home because they made a great steak. There was a server there who served us for 10 years. He was a professional server. Like this guy, they just don't make them like this anymore. He really loved serving people. And he would talk to you about the menu. And when he would explain what was on the menu, you felt like you were there catching the fish with the fishermen. And then like in the kitchen with the chef, with the olive oil and the white wine and the crushed salt and black pepper combined with the chili sauce. I mean, whatever. It was just the luxury to go there. And so because we were all on a TV show, we were all like, oh, great. Let's just spend our money on great food all the time, which we did. We filled that place up all the time. It was great. So Deluxe was awesome, but it's closed now. And I don't know what's in that space, but there are other staples that we loved. The Dixie Grill. Mm. That's where you go after you wake up after a long night. That's the hangover spot before you have to go into work in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) There was a little place on the river called Le Catalan, the French place. I I had many a glass of wine there sitting out and looking at the Cape Fear. Spent a lot of time writing in my journals and in Early Gardens, Blue Water Grill. And there was a little Italian place on Carolina Beach. I think they made fresh pasta. It was so good. Do you miss Wilmington? Yeah, I miss it all the time. And we go back for conventions and things, and I get a chance to jump back into some of those spots. I see a lot of familiar faces and a lot of unfamiliar faces. I mean, the town has really grown. It's gone through its own boom, and it seems like it's doing really well, which is so nice to see. But that's one thing about getting older, you know, going back to places that you knew when you were a kid and seeing how things change. It's so bittersweet. I don't know if you feel that way. I mean, you've traveled so much in your life. Have you experienced that? Yeah, it can it can be hard. I mean, you know, we spent a lot of years in Charleston and Charleston's a very different place now than it was 10 years ago. But of course, you know, places do change and they evolve and that's just part of life. But some things you just don't want to change, you know. I know. I it's <laughs> I feel like there's these places that I preserve in my mind and they feel like they're mine. I know they're not mine, but it feels a little bit like oh, this is my special spot. Don't ruin it. Don't Don't come in with your cute skateboard shop. Like that was a flower shop before. I want my flowers. (laughs) I don't skateboard. (laughs) After the break, I'll talk more with Joy Lentz about her faith, her venture into the print newspaper business, and how she was drawn into a cult. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with the actress, singer, and podcaster, Joy Lentz. Joy, I want to ask you about your faith, which is something that you've talked about over the years, and it's very much a part of who you are. 
And I'm just wondering, was the church a part of your life when you were growing up? It sure was. Yeah. I grew up non-denominational. My grandmother, Marge, was raised Anglican or Catholic, one of the two. Very strict, typical 1930s, 40s upbringing in that faith. And then when life really kicked her butt, she decided to go find out who God is. And so she went to every religion, every church. She just dragged the kids. My mom tells me these memories she has of just being taken to temples and mosques and Christian church cathedrals really, and like, little churches in the everything. And she landed on Christianity. She was a Lutheran for many years. Eventually, she converted to Messianic Judaism as a practice. What my mother and her sister ended up really growing up in was Lutheranism and this exposure to Messianic Judaism. And then my mom went to Bible college. That's where she met my dad. And they raised me in a non-denominational environment. And so we visited lots of different denominations, but I think we always landed at this typical American evangelical non-denominational space. And so that was my upbringing. But you were always going to church somewhere, whether you were in Texas or in New Jersey, or did that even yeah. continue when you're in Wilmington? No, everywhere. My parents really prioritized that. And I have to say, it's one of the things they really did right was instilling in me the confidence to have my own relationship with God. I wasn't doing it perfectly. They weren't doing it perfectly. The church was never going to do it perfectly because the church is made up of human beings and we're all imperfect. But in spite of the fact that we bounced around church to church and we were living in different places and it was hard to really dig into a community because we never knew when we were going to get up and go— I did really feel like Jesus was my best friend growing up, aside from my Cocker Spaniel. <laughs> and I did really have this sense of not being alone, even though I was an only child and didn't have a ton of friends. And it made a huge difference in my life. Before Wilmington, I moved out to New York on my own and lived there for several years. And I went off and on to Redeemer Press, and that's where I got to know Tim Keller's ministry. And I was just really enthralled with the idea that my faith didn't have to just be a thing that's all feelings and coffee in the lobby and everybody smiling and feeling good or pretending to feel good, which is what I experienced a lot of in the evangelical church. Going and being a part of that Redeemer Presbyterian community, even though I was 19, 20, I was sort of like toe in, toe out. I was there sometimes and not. But I was enthralled with the idea that faith could be intellectually satisfying, that there was actually a space where I could really use my brain to the fullest capacity and that God wasn't afraid of me asking questions, deep, smart, intelligent, thoughtful, pressing questions about science and faith. And I learned that from listening to Tim Keller. And so his ministry stuck with me for a long time. I moved to Wilmington. I did visit Port City Church. I liked that a lot. And that speaker also felt very cerebral, which I appreciated. But I also took a detour and has been in the press. I had the cult experience for 10 years. So that was happening while I was also in tandem in Wilmington. And so I didn't really sew into a church community in Wilmington, though I wish I had, because I sure would have saved myself a lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you talking about that and read some of the things that you said, and it sounds like you did go through a pretty dark time for a long time. Yeah. Did your friends on the show kind of help you out of that, 
Or was it something that you really kind of had to emerge from on your own? Yeah, what they did help with, I think, was just by their sheer presence and professionalism and kindness, especially the older cast. We know now being older and we look at people in their 20s and the decisions they're making and the attitudes they have about things sometimes. And I think we have more grace for them because we know what we were like when we were 20 and the way that we saw the world. And you kind of go, oh, the kids are going to be all right, you know. And I think they saw that in me and their confidence in my ability. They knew I was a smart person. I was a good actor. You can't be a good actor without being smart. You can't dissect a script without being able to assess things. But I had a big blind spot in my life. And everybody does. And mine was something that I was going to have to work out on my own. But in the meantime, I feel like a lot of the people there whether conscious or subconsciously, knew that just their presence and being an encouragement and letting me know that they still loved and cared about me in spite of the fact that I was a little weird, that made a big difference. It made me feel like there was a safety when it came time for me to leave that group. I did still feel like there were many open arms and that felt really, really good. And it was very helpful. Mm. I know you're writing a book about this experience or at least this is part of the book. What's your hope or goal in sharing that story? My goal really is that I just want people to know that they're not alone and that there is life after trauma. It was 10 years of pretty intense mental, spiritual, financial abuse. And when you're that young, you're rewiring your brain. Those electrical neuropathways are forming. And so you get out of that and it's like a ha- I, I need to be a new person, but I have all these old patterns and ways of thinking. And it can feel so overwhelming to come out of that and feel like, I don't even know where to start. I'm back at square one. And there's so much shame attached to that. And then so many people that don't understand, they hear the word cult or they think spiritual abuse. And that sounds real hippy dippy. But It is very real and people experience it not just on a group level, but one-on-one relationships with a partner or sometimes with family members. It's insidious and it exists not just in the big bad places that get all the attention like cults. And so I want to create a space that feels safe and feels like people can go and find out about some crazy stuff, but also you're going to be able to relate and feel like If you come across the people who are predators in this space, that you're going to recognize it, you'll have tools to avoid getting into those traps. If you're already in that trap and you don't know how to get out, maybe this will help inspire you and give you some ideas to be able to know what's normal and what's not normal, how to have boundaries, how to recognize it. I'm kind of packing it all in and I'm just hoping that it's helpful. Well, I hope you're nearing the finish line on that project and I know a lot of people are going to be excited to read it. Thank you. We're getting real close. I want to talk about something a little more cheerful. Let's talk about the holidays. So, you know, you are obviously someone who loves the holidays. You've done all sorts of stuff around the holidays. You've recorded a lot of Christmas music. You've made Christmas films. So what is your connection to Christmas? I mean, what did it mean to you growing up? And what does it mean to you as a mom, too? Christmas was always special because I grew up in a Christian household and because Christ's story was deeply embedded in my heart, I felt deeply connected to that culturally and just as an experience of a time to feel warmth and meditate on something that was very valuable and important in my life. 
And I think that I cannot even begin to answer this question without saying that because that is where everything else stems from. And as I've gotten older, I understand that more on an intellectual level and on a deep guttural, the idea of grace and mercy and humility and all of those themes, I enjoy the opportunity to slow down and meditate on those things because I'm busy and I'm bad at managing my time. And then as I became a mom... Christmas took on that whole other meaning, which I'm sure you know as a dad, it becomes a whole other thing. And then you also have to worry about, like, I don't want her to think I'm lying to her. And what about these people who go until they're like 12, 13, then suddenly realize their parents were lying to them? I mean, if, if your parents can pull it off to your 12 or 13, I guess that's a whole other thing. But and then they resent you and they're mad at you. I mean, we had a whole thing about the tooth fairy in my house. I was like, oh my gosh, what is going to happen when she finds out about Santa Claus? This is really bad. I have put myself <laughs> in a pickle. But I love the magic. I just decided we're going to be a household full of magic. We love Harry Potter. We love Narnia. We love fairy tale theater. If you remember that Shelley Duvall series from the 90s, yeah. we are definitely a storytelling fairy tale household. And I fully embrace the idea and the spirit of Christmas in that way. So every time I spoke to her about Santa, if she ever asked me, is he real? I would always say something like the spirit of Santa Claus is absolutely real. Hmm. And then I would move on to another topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking to someone who was totally busted for trying to sneak up to my son's bedroom. And kids, don't listen. But I had the elf, and I was going to put the elf on his bed because as it got closer and closer to Christmas, you know, the elf would get closer and closer to their rooms. And I was leaning over, and he never woke up, ever, in the middle of the night. And this time, of course, he did. And he just said, Dad, you're totally busted. <laughs> oh, no. And that was the end. Oh, no. That was the end. I'm, of I'm so mad that. at whoever invented that elf. But Christmas is so magical with kids. I mean, I would do all kinds of fun things and put glitter down outside the fireplace. I'd put glitter a trail to her bedroom where her stocking would always go at the end of her bed and the glitter would go up the, into the fireplace. And I love wrapping presents and creating little creatures out of the gift wrapping and I think creative folks come alive during the holiday season, for sure. Well, what about in terms of music? You had a Christmas album come out a few years ago, right at the yeah. height of the pandemic. I think there were half a dozen songs on that yeah. album. Was there one song that you really loved to sing the most? Hmm. I loved Snow, the title track for the album. I had a lot of fun writing that. I'm really proud of that song. It's very jazzy sort of complex jazzy song. And I feel like I did exactly what I wanted to do with that song. And I'm really proud of it. And the other one I really love on that album is My Christmas With You, which was originally written as a quartet. When I lived in Wilmington, I wrote a stage musical version of The Notebook. And there's this scene where there's two things happening on stage at the same time. The soldiers go to war and then the character of Allie is in a nightclub and she's meeting her soon-to-be fiance. I wrote this song where then it transitions out of that and then they go into this quartet with her parents and they're having a conversation like, let's have a nice walk in the Christmas snow. And they all go out and it's this four-part harmony Christmas song, which felt a little too complicated to do for a independent Christmas album like what I was creating. So then I called my friend Anthony Evans, who is from Dallas, Dr. Tony Evans' son. Anthony's an incredible singer. 
and a dear friend. And he said, sure, and just jumped into the studio and threw down a harmony. And we turned it into a sweet little Christmas duet. I've heard it. It's great. Thanks. Feel that snow, feel that cold wind Blow, blow, blow Don't you forget inside my heart is warm and true Since I spent my Christmas with you Well, I hope you're going to keep writing those. I hope so too, yeah. I love writing. I never thought I'd be in a season where... I'm writing, that's all I'm doing, really. I'm writing for my newspaper. I'm going in and doing songwriting sessions, and now I'm writing a book. And so there's a lot of output. (laughs) Well, I want to talk about that, too. So you're working on this newspaper. You just launched it a few months ago. I've seen it. It's great. It's called Modern Vintage. Um, Thanks. And... I mean, I don't want to burst your bubble or anything, but, you know, the newspaper business has not exactly (laughs) been booming booming. recently. (laughs) Why did you want to start this now and why this medium? Well, I wanted to start it now because it's been an idea I've had for 20 years. And if not now, when am I going to finally just pull the trigger on this? So I just said, let's just get moving and we'll see how far I get. And I just wanted to create something that was fun, super artistic. I just was like, I keep having all these interesting conversations and painting and I'm talking with people about art and history and ideas. And how do we just put all this into one contained space for people whose brains are like mine and are a little squirrely and we want to bounce around from topic to topic like we all do on Instagram now, but without staring at a screen. So I thought, okay, I'll make a women's lifestyle magazine. It's going to be everything from historical profiles to fashion advice to theology discussions to how to change the oil in your car and crossword puzzles and everything in between. We're just going to throw it all in there. But the more I thought about a magazine, it just didn't, for whatever reason, didn't hit me the right way. And my little brother, who is 20, was talking to me about how he goes and buys all these old Nintendos and old keyboards, like computer keyboards, and he's got VHS tapes. And and I started talking with him about this fascination with retro culture. And it seems like a lot of younger people are really into that right now. And I love a newspaper. So I don't know, that's how it all just came together. And it's just like big broadsheet, you know, like you can just open it up. And I, I just, I miss that. I miss being able to do that. I love it. Well, I love print. And there is something about having something in your hands and it feels like yours, and it feels like it was made for you, that allows you to connect with it in a way that is harder to do on a screen. But tell me about feedback. Have you had people who have, you know, written in, emailed you, stopped you on the street and said, thank you, thank you, I needed this? It's so early on in the process, and we're still, we're putting things out so that people will write in, they will email, hopefully eventually stop us on the street, but to say, here's what I love, here's what I don't love, here's what I need more of, here's what I need less of. It's a total experiment, but I have been getting a lot of great feedback in our inbox and our DMs on Instagram and photos of people. One woman said that her son walked in the kitchen, he was nine, he goes, why is mommy reading a newspaper? She looks like a man. (laughs) And I thought, yes, that's exactly the reaction I want. Like, why are we so used to relegating newspapers to men? You know, I want to read a newspaper. But the idea really is to reinstate critical thinking, because I think we've lost a lot of that with the more hypnosis that we've 
allowed ourselves to walk into with these algorithms, we're not spending a lot of time dissecting where the information's coming from and what we actually think or believe about it. I miss having conversations where I learn something because I think about something in a way I'd never thought about it before. But I want to come to that conclusion myself. I want to process through things. I don't want to just be told what to think and then fall in line. So I wanted to make this be something that's going to charge your brain up. I love that you're trying to pack so much into it and make it thoughtful and, you know, make it a publication about ideas. So yeah. I can't wait to see the next one. And hopefully it'll become the same kind of thing. Yeah, the next <laughs> one's even better. Like we upgraded the design. It looks beautiful. Oh, I'm so happy. I'll send you some screenshots. I'm really excited. And our headliner for next month is Nicholas Sparks. Your friend. My friend, Nick Sparks. Yeah, he's written something beautiful for us. We've got Elizabeth Passarella who wrote Good Apple. I know her. She writes for Southern Living. Um, yes, I love her. And she's from my hometown of Memphis. Oh yeah. my gosh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And we've got Brett Young, big country star. Yeah. But there is something about print, Sid, and you know it, like the people who are subscribed to Southern Living and they consider it to be their space. It is their safe space that, you know, what we talk about when we go to places and we're like, don't change, just be there for me. And I think magazines like Southern Living have done that and they've stood the test of time and they've created that space for people. And I just want to contribute to that as well. Well, I'll be looking for the next one. <laughs> Thank um, you. Well, Joy, I could talk to you all day. I've got more questions, but I'm just going to leave you with one more. What does it mean to you to be Southern? Mm. Slowing down, slowing down, which I think is so underrated and so valuable. When you slow down, you listen more, you notice more, you hear more, you can create more, you think about more, you have more patience. You have more time. And it's something that is so valuable to me in my life right now. And I think always has been. Yeah, slowing down. Easier said than done sometimes. Amen, brother. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Joy Lenz, thanks so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. I'm so glad you had me. Thank you for inviting me. It was great talking with you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Joy Lentz. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be talking with the Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Brent Cobb. We'll see you then.